Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. It's hard to read or listen to the news and not hear something about NFTs. In their simplest form, NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, are a one-of-a-kind digital item like art, music, video, or an image that people can purchase, own, and sell. Although NFTs have been around for a few years, their popularity has had a meteoric rise in the last year. Celebrities from rapper Jay-Z to tennis star Naomi Osaka created and sold NFTs in recent months. Many of us have heard of NFTs, but are not quite sure what they are or understand they are and will play in our digital economy. To help us better understand NFTs, we have joining us here in our studio, Pete Singh. Pete is an attorney with the law firm of Foursquare, where he practices in a wide range of areas, including intellectual property, licensing, commercial transactions, and business law. Pete was named to the National Black Lawyers 2021 Top 40 Under 40 list, and he is also a professional musician. Pete, thanks so much for taking time and joining us to talk about this very interesting area of NFTs. Yeah, my, my pleasure. It's a fascinating space, uh, both on the legal and the business side, but also as a creative individual, uh, completely new frontier. All right. So we'll, we'll get into um, all of those areas. But before we do, we want to learn a little bit about you. So can you share with us? A little about your background, how you became interested in law generally, and how you became interested in like the business law space. Yeah, uh, so the career path started very young. Uh, come from a Jamaican household, so there were only a few options before me: um, either be a doctor like my sister, uh, engineer like my dad, or a lawyer was the uh, only uncharted path. So that's what I chose uh, and originally envisioned just wearing a suit every day. And uh, that appealed to me. But in reality, uh, the biggest draw ended up being uh, the intellectual property space. Um, it was fascinating to me how how people could create value out of these intangible things that you can't really hold, you can't really have, but um, they really do mean something to someone. Um, and there's entire industries from film to music to television that um, are all based on these airwaves and these frequencies uh, being bounced around the world. Um, and we just try to capture them. Uh, we cling to what we love and um, between genres and, and, and the like. So um, that really appealed to me, just the framework for how uh, you can monetize and, and make an economy out of something. Uh, so ethereal. Um, so that's what drew me to uh, law uh, because it, it really does sort of underpin and undergird um, that entire 
uh, stock and trade. Um, business law specifically uh, is where my career path led me. Um, I did imagine myself being sort of the cliche courtroom uh, bombardier, um, but I, I found my my personality uh, was much better suited for the boardroom and for behind the scenes uh, instead of uh, out there in front lines. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying my practice. It's currently with uh, four score business law in, in Raleigh. Um, went to Duke Law and, and then sort of circled back to the area uh, after a few years. Um, was an entertainment lawyer first in New York uh, from 2015 to 2017, and then took a an in-house position with a private equity firm um, that actually has some pretty interesting overlap with today's topic. Uh, part of their portfolio uh, was a company called Beckett Media and Collectibles. Um, and they're sort of in the trading card and sports mem memorabilia space. Um, so NFTs are sort of disrupting that entire market. And um, very short stick with that that private equity firm uh, that eventually pivoted to a, the startups practice group at Smith Anderson, a great, great firm in Raleigh. Um, there is where I originally crossed paths with uh, my current firm's founder, Jesse Jones. Um, we're both sort of alum or refugees of the same practice and partner. Um, so we bonded over that, uh, even though he, he had been there years before and sort of matriculated uh, elsewhere before starting his shop. Um, but yeah, that, that was great uh, training ground. And he saw something in me, took me on board in uh, 2018. And the rest is history. Uh, it's been, been a wonderful ride with that team. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited for today's conversation. So you mentioned intellectual property, and you also mentioned that you are a musician. So were you involved with music prior to going to law school? Is that because, of course, when we're thinking about creatives, musicians, um, artists of, of any type, intellectual property is a key uh, area that they need to be aware of. So tell us a yeah. little bit about your professional music career and what role that played. Yeah. Um, so my, my grandfather, uh, he was a musician, multi-instrumentalist um, in Jamaica and stateside after they moved. Um, so he put a tenor sax in my hands when I was five years old. Uh, I, it was bigger than I was at the time, but it was uh, sort of the start of my journey. I was taking paid gigs uh, by the age of six. And I guess that's the start to the professional piece of the, the music career. Um, Looking back, I, I don't think I was that great, but people enjoyed it well enough. Um, and since then, I've, I've sort of bounced around instrument to instrument, uh, currently at least competent or proficient um, on most of the major band instruments, piano, bass, drums, guitar. Um, but I, I sort of try to do it all. Uh, the space I enjoy most, and, and to your question, um, is behind the scenes. So songwriting, producing, um, really everything on the intellectual property front is sort of where I found my niche. Um, and yeah, it's been uh, a challenge to, to keep that career going as, as I'm a practicing attorney as well. Um, but the firm I'm with, they're super flexible. Um, they understand where my passions lie. And, and just anecdotally, I mean, this week I'm 
pretty much around the clock uh, between closing a Series A financing for a client. And then I have a conference in Revival with uh, one of the main ministries I work with in Raleigh. Um, so that's rehearsal tonight, service Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, and working all day in between. So um, caffeinating, doing what I can to <laughs> keep the energy up, uh, taking some breaks to work out on the Peloton, lift on the tonal, the whole nine. Um, Squeezing in a, a radio interview. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trying to do it all. I'm sure I'll hit a wall at some point. But um, but yeah, the music career has been a, a great pendant uh, to my legal practice and, and really just a way to keep that passion alive and well. So that sounds like the uh, traditional... Uh... Uh, to make an image, uh, nine <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah, I I live the stereotype for, for sure. <laughs> so NFTs, let's all right. So we we hear about them all the time. It's it's really hard for folks to wrap their head around it. As I think, especially those of us of a certain age. So I remember talking to my son, who is um he's he's twenty eight, so he's in that generation that kind of gets it. I'm not entirely. And it, it has been challenging for, for me to wrap my head around it, even though I've, I've read about it, I've heard about it, I have an understanding of, you know, blockchain, which we'll talk about a little bit, but how do you break down what NFTs are for those that just don't get it? Yeah, great question. Um, and, and one of the, the prides of my practice is trying to demystify a, a lot of this stuff, even when it comes to uh more traditional intellectual properties they're very layered and confusing on purpose um, so sorting through the maze uh is one of my points of pride i think the easiest way and simplest way to explain what a non-fungible token or nft is is to first explain what it's not so the the non-piece of the non-fungible um that's separating it from fungible tokens, which is anything like the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, even cash, anything you can exchange one for one and have the same value. Um, those are things that we call fungible. They change hands. There's nothing lost. Um, when it's non-fungible, uh, that non speaks to a unique uh, characteristic. So it's Scarcity, it's something that can be uh, claimed as owned, claimed as singularly uh, owned by one person. Um, and that's really where the value lies, is with this idea of authentication or certification. Um, the, the most used example is, is the Mona Lisa. Um, that's been reproduced, copied thousands and hundreds of thousands of times, but that original in the Louvre has a, has a value to it. Um, and that's really based on it being one of one, um, even though there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of replicas out there. So it's, uh, very counterintuitive when it comes to the, the digital space where, images and videos and all of these files are so easily reproduced um one would think that having one of those copies would be worth less um but 
the irony of it and the the market of it is that the more these things are reproduced and popularized, um, the more one can see the value in having what's considered the original, what's considered uh, the seminal piece that all these things flow from. So it's whether it's the cultural value of just being able to say you have a, a clip of a athlete doing something phenomenal that no one else can do, or whether there's uh, just the speculative value, the economic value of this thing being more popular tomorrow than it was yesterday. Um, all of these things sort of play into the non-fungible token space. Um, but ultimately, the point of it is just that it's unique. It's uh, a singular thing. Um, and that that does bring in uh, a whole layer and rigmarole of the the intersection of this, this market and copyright law and the other markets we're more used to um, dealing with. Um, so yeah, I would say NFT equals a unique thing. Um, it's very important uh, if you are looking into that market to do your due diligence and make sure for one, you're buying it from someone that has a right to sell it. Um, and that's sort of become a, a piece of things that that people unfortunately thought of um, in the worst case scenario where they're sued by the, the actual owner and, and then have to figure that out. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that's the simplest explanation, just a unique thing. So with the, the Mona Lisa example real quick, which is helpful, and, and I think this is where the disconnect is for many of us. Um, and I say older folk, uh, including myself in that, is that if I purchase a Mona Lisa, yes, there may be copies around everywhere, right? But if I purchase the original, I have it in my home. And when people come to my home, they can see it and they can, right? I have a, I have a physical copy of it. And with NFTs, you don't have that. Um, so even though you do own it, you're owning it out in the cloud somewhere. Can you explain um, the the difference between the two and, and why even if you don't have a physical copy um, that you you know that that has that ownership that you still have that value tied to it yeah great question um, and and it is important to to note that some of the uh, most renowned and, and most valued art collections um, don't live with the owners. They're spread around in museums or even just held up in a in a hangar somewhere <laughs> so they, they can offshore those assets. Um, so a lot of it really does come down to uh, the perceived value, um, whether you can physically touch it, see it, smell it, taste it or not. Um, it's the idea that you have a legitimate claim to this thing. Um, I would say in, in terms of where that's valuable and how that's valuable, it, it really does harken back to uh, the question of art altogether. Um, is the, that beauty being in the eye of the beholder and that value uh, being really named by whosoever has the cash to burn and, and wants that thing. Um, so it, it does not ultimately come down to the physical matter, um, but much the same, it is based on the, the chain of title, um, which 
it, it leads us to the discussion of blockchain and, and sort of how that lends itself to, um, for one, that authentication and the certification piece, but um, also smart contracts are, are a really big part of NFTs that uh, they, they have the ability, I think, to um, really make a lot of headway to make the pipeline of works, of valuable works, from the creative to the consumer, much more direct. Um, cutting out a lot of the middlemen and a lot of the uh, confusion around who owns what. Um, one example that comes to mind just from my own experience is uh, music publishing, um, how layered that can be with some things adding up to 200%, which mathematically makes no sense. But that's the lay of the land when it comes to uh, dealing with publishers, writers, the whole nine, and how those things are split. With smart contracts, you, you will really be able to bake in to the thing itself, um, those proceeds flow. And it has the abil ability to do it automatically. If you have your uh, payment information linked, it, it'll just hit. Um, and that's something really unforeseen and, and something I think will disrupt a lot of, of industry. Um, but I'm, I'm here for it. I would definitely welcome it. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we're talking this hour about NFTs or non-fungible tokens. We have here with us in our Zoom studio, Peter Singh, who is an attorney at the Fourscore Business Law um, Organization, where he practices a wide range of issues, including intellectual property and licensing. He's also a professional musician. We're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and here is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Did you know that a driver is considered to be legally impaired when their blood alcohol concentration measures 0.08 or higher? Alcohol severely hampers a driver's ability to safely operate a motor vehicle, impairing judgment and slowing reaction time. Here are some statistics about drinking and driving. One alcohol-related death occurs every 52 minutes according to the NHTSA. Drunk driving causes more than 10,000 deaths every year, about one-third of all traffic-related deaths. In a recent year, more than 230 children were killed by drunk driving crashes. Drinking and driving costs more than $44 billion in deaths and damages annually. 25% of adults admit that they drink more during the holiday season. The period from Thanksgiving to New Year's season estimated 25,000 injuries from alcohol-related crashes. New Year's Day is the deadliest day for alcohol-related crashes, with 58% of crashes being related to alcohol. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your reminder not to drink and drive this holiday season. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion uh, with uh, Pete uh, Singh, uh, where we're talking about uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, uh, a concept that is uh, foreign uh, to, uh, to many of us, uh, but one that is uh, part of a 
uh, growing awareness uh, within our economic uh, system. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, I'm trying to put my head around it because uh, as an older person, this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to possession and ownership uh, where you can put your hands on it and you can, can see it. And as I understand it, uh, when we talk about uh, NFTs, we're talking about ownership, but not necessarily possession. Uh, physical possession in the sense that we know of it. Where is the possession of the object uh, that uh, that that we're owning uh, in this uh, in this in, in this NFT space? Yeah, great question. Um, I I would say it is as real and as existent as your money in the bank. Um, so the whole concept of of blockchain um, being a shared ledger that records transactions. Um, it's exactly what City does, TD Bank does, Chase does. Um, when they make their credits, their debits, um, the blockchain as, as a undergirding system for NFT trade um, essentially does the same thing. So it shows the minting of the NFT, the creation of it. Um, points to the original owner, whoever claims to be the original owner. Um, and from then, you can buy and sell and trade that thing, uh, much like stocks, much like bonds, much like other markets. Um, so in, in this day and age, uh, very few of us actually live anymore with the, the money under our mattress or the cash that we can touch and have and hold. Um, but we do trust these systems to, to take account for it, to be good for it if we ever do want it and, and come to claim it um, with a withdrawal or what have you. Um, so much the same, um, that's sort of how the, the blockchain operates and how the blockchain works. Um, the difference is ultimately um, absent the the cash and absent the gold standard, which we don't even have with cash anymore. Um, there ultimately is only a digital thing. Um, the, the asterisk there is that that digital thing can represent physical things. We've, we've seen attempts to use NFTs even in the, the oldest of uh, the, the brick and mortar markets, which is real estate, like having, land transfers and and actual properties real property uh change hands with a blockchain and with uh a token representing that transfer um still some kinks to work out there <laughs> in terms of uh how those transactions uh then lead to deeds and then lead to the uh fitting into our older systems but um, ultimately, the, the thing you have is just evidence that you have something, um, which is exactly what we have with our bank accounts and exactly what we have with, with most everything we uh, take stock and value in today. Yeah, and, and I understand part, a part of it uh, and how it operates in the same sense that you have uh, a $100 bill, but in reality, all you have is a piece of paper. Right. And uh, with that piece of paper, it is the idea in our head that that particular piece of paper is worth a uh, $100 uh, rather than $50 uh, because we have denominated it uh, as such. 
But when we talk about this uh, NFT uh, notion, uh, how do we monetize uh, that kind of abstract ownership uh, or abstract possession of the uh, object that uh, that we're claiming ownership to? Yeah, um, it is a very volatile <laughs> pricing model, uh, about as varied a value system as I've ever seen for anything. Um, you have some some pieces, uh, composite pieces selling for 69 million. Um, you have others that literally just sit there once they're minted and nobody pays attention to them and nobody cares. So they effectively have a zero dollar uh, value um, in, in terms of what the market sees. Um, so it, it sort of harkens back to that uh, old cliche I already used, which is that with art, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, so it will always come back to that question of what someone is willing to pay for whatever reason, whether it's as a collectible, as an investment, just as fun <laughs> or as a thing. Um, we did even see a, a wave of uh, like meme stocks earlier this year that, that were based on people just trying to ride a wave. Um, some of them to make money, some of them to stick it to the man, some of them for whatever rationale they had. Um, but ultimately that had real dollars and cents impacts on, on those businesses, on those prior investors and uh, forecasts and the, the whole nine. Um, so much the same with, with an NFT, you could have an unknown artist uh, mint their first beat, their first painting, their first anything. And if they blow up and if they become the next big wave, the next Beyonce, um, that thing will be the sky's the limit in terms of the value there. Um, so yeah, I, I think my answer is a non-answer in that the value um, can't be readily uh, stated definitely, but it can vary widely and wildly. Well, let, let me just, just throw to that. How, how can you steal it? <laughs> um, so that, that's the good question. Um, it's hard, very hard. So the process for, uh, for the blockchain, um, really lends itself to being one of the most secure, methods of recording transactions and having a history of ownership that we've seen. Um, it's a distributed ledger, so it's all across the world. People are trying to do what's what's called proof of, uh, proof of work in order to certify that these transactions happened, their history, they are unchanged forever. Um, so it's, you can't undo that. That's one of the benefits to the blockchain. Um, where, where you can steal something or uh, essentially bypass the, the built-in security methods is if you get access to someone's digital wallet, um, which is hard. I, I opened one up today uh, just to understand how it works myself. Um, and it's a... It's a multi-factor authentication process. You have 
um, these 10 words that are given to you and only you, not even the system that generates them and keeps a record of it. Um, you're supposed to keep that safe and, and be the only one with access to it. Um, so that's, that's the private key. Um, there, there's also a public key associated with each digital wallet where you can see what people want you to see that they own. Um, and that's sort of where the NFT market uh, really plays in is that you want uh, whatever you do buy um, to be associated with your, your wallet, your, your account. Um, what you don't want is for somebody to get that other piece, the private key, in order to make a transfer, make a transaction that you don't authorize yourself. Yeah, you know, you were talking about and I thought it was really interesting that the more popular something is, if there's an NFT associated with it, it probably is indicative of increasing value. And when you were mentioning that people, you know, people have different goals when they're purchasing NFTs. And a lot of it is, I'm, I'm you know, from what I hear from the younger folk, it's, it's about status. And so if you get an NFT from, you know, Jay-Z, for example, if he mints an NFT and you have that, you would want people to know. And that's kind of part of that value. So can you talk a little bit about how one would actually even go about purchasing an NFT? Yeah, great question. So one of my my favorite uh, music artists currently is a, a guy out of Houston named Toby Nguigwe. Um, just a few days ago, he minted his first NFT. Um, as part of his monumental tour, he, he has a whole aesthetic thing tied to his music where everything's mint green from the outfits to the instruments, to the stage, to the clothing. Um, so he's, he's really leaning into it. But um, for instance, with his, uh, his token, you do have to create a digital wallet of your own, um, somewhere to have it, somewhere to house it, somewhere to hold it. Um, and then from there, you can buy whatever you want on the, on the marketplace. Um, yes, great. Try Jesus video <laughs> is, is one of his. Um, yeah, so once you have a wallet, you're able to buy and sell and, and even mint your own stuff. Um, everything is built upon a platform. Uh, most, most in the NFT space are um, Ethereum based is the underlying, um, but there are some alternatives and some other options, but, um, really no matter how you come to it, um, it's going to be, you have a digital wallet that you create, um, and you fill it with whatever you want to. Um, the price is named by the seller. Um, you can of course name a higher price if you think it's worth more. But in order for them to transfer it to you, you have to at least meet uh, their minimum. And, and then you take it from there. So you mentioned the digital wallet, which then raises another issue in terms of accessibility. So, you know, as you mentioned, people are purchasing NFTs for a host of reasons. One, you might just really like the artist and you want to have it regardless of whether anyone else thinks it has value. But there are a lot of people who are purchasing NFTs for investments, as you noted. Mm -hmm. uh, but in order to be able to purchase an NFT, you have to have a certain level of sophistication when it comes to cryptocurrency because you've got to have that digital wallet. You got to be able to understand um, Ethereum. 
can you talk about the um, the digital divide that may have an impact on who's able to take advantage of this NFT space? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I do think there there are some barriers to entry. Um, just one, having access to internet to some sort of device um, to get there. Um, in terms of economics, uh, most of these digital wallet sites are are free, um, so there there's not too much stopping you there. Um, but uh, further to the economic point, uh, it does price uh, a lot of us out <laughs> if you don't have disposable income or uh, something to potentially give away and, and never get anything in return for. Um, so the I do see the digital divide from one just being able to to get onto a, a website and, and create a wallet yourself, but um, even to just having disposable income or, or anything that you're able to put toward um, owning something like this that ultimately does not feed you today, ultimately does not house you today. Um, those, those things are uh, more important <laughs> than, than playing in this game. Um, but to that, to that end, um, I, I am torn on uh, spaces like NFTs, crypto at large, um, and other more speculative investment uh, tranches in, in, in that. Uh, there is a potential um, for a wide redistribution of wealth and like gains that we don't see in, in many other spaces because it's ultimately uh, whether it is the, the new and the next thing or just a boom or a wave or a, a bubble that will crash, um, there's an opportunity there for the people that are willing to take the risk um, to get in and get out before it's too late. <laughs> and um, I, I do uh, personally, I, I'm not too deep in the crypto space at all. Um, I'm, I come from a Jamaican family, as I mentioned, and <laughs> they're, uh, they're much uh, more focused on on the older brick and mortar real estate investment portfolio approaches. Um, so that that's sort of where I have my horses in uh, and my bets in. Um, but to to be as uh, <clears throat> to have variety and, and round out my portfolio, um, I have also dabbled in the the meme stock space, like I mentioned earlier, <laughs> and uh, and crypto. Um, not not NFTs yet, but it it is hit list. Right. This is the uh, legal legal review. And uh, we're going to have to take our break uh, right now. We're talking with uh, attorney uh, Pete Singh uh, about uh, NFTs, the non-fungible tokens. And I uh, want you to uh, stay with us when we uh, come back and continue uh, that discussion. So we'll be right back.
North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Pete Singh about NFTs, what they are, where their value comes from, what we should be thinking about when it comes to this developing area. And um, Pete, you were talking about the volatile nature of NFTs. And and earlier in the show, you were talking about uh, folks needing to do their due diligence before getting involved. Um, We have a lot of creatives who are creating NFTs. So you mentioned one of your favorite artists um, out of Houston. And yeah, it's like you look on the news and there's a new celebrity who's creating an NFT. So so the first question is, why are these celebrities creating NFTs? And the kind of second related question is for budding creatives or for those that are in that artistic space, do you have any advice for them about creating NFTs? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting intersection um, with arts music specifically um the, just the concept of what you can tokenize so um with with toby that that example um i'm looking at at his announcement now he has basically three ways to get a token uh an nft from him one is to be a vip ticket holder for his current tour um so it's kind of just a a goodie that comes attached with that. Um, a second is that he's doing city drops. So he's uh, in order to build engagement as, as he goes, um, just allowing some of those uh, tour sites to uh, have a certain number minted and, and given out. Um, and then the last one is a lottery <laughs> that he has fans enter and then they have a chance at a, at a coin. Um, to me, that's that's a perfect example of of the sort of benefit and value um, you can you can really drive out of out of this sort of thing. So, um, 
He's for one driving his VIP ticket sales, which he wants. He's encouraging people to come out in those cities that he's going to. And he's encouraging his fans to actually uh, enter affirmatively enter a lottery, probably sign up for a listserv, probably sign up for other announcements um, to where they will be an engaged community. Um, we've seen artists. So there's a way to tokenize um, even experiences with, with the artist. So um, I, I've, I've seen it such that the meet and greet for an artist will only be with token holders. So if somebody wants to touch the hem of their garment, they will have to either buy it on the secondary market, buy it from the artists themselves. Um, and you really have people that want that <laughs> experience ultimately. So they, they might see astronomical value there. Um, or if you don't care about that person, you don't care about the token. So there's, there's all sorts of ways to split it. Um, I, I think celebrities and unknowns alike can both see a value and a benefit in direct uh, fan or consumer engagement, um, direct fan or consumer uh, distribution. You're, you're able to even have it such that you don't need a record label to create a vinyl to spin, to sell, to do any of that. Um, you, you very well have the, uh, capability yourself, um, to build a fan base and reach that fan base. Um, not, not to say labels don't have any sort of value anymore. They're, they're still great marketing arms, great engines and, and the, um, the industry as we know it, but that industry is changing, uh, as we see, um, Toby, for, for example, he's an independent guy, but anybody that wants to hear his music can um he's uh not to focus entirely on him and his artistry um but he, he also has a a side venture called breaker um which does what the uh what the labels used to do for you make that radio push with djs um in order to get your song very popularized get it as an earworm to the person on their commute so they download it later um, so he's found a way to really uh, create his own machine to some degree. Um, it's not new. Nothing he's doing really is new. Um, the NFT space is a, is a new spin on, on sort of the same uh, create a thing and people will come model. Um, so yeah, I, I think for independents, for up and comers, for even for more established artists, um, you're able to create and maintain this pipeline um, to the people that care about what you do. Um, that, that's really unprecedented to some degree. You, you can uh, create a, a track, a song, an exclusive um, that only an NFT holder can hear. Um, that's one way, but again, it's, it's sort of the irony I touched on earlier is even if everybody hears it, even if everybody has it, um, just the notion that you're one of the few, one of the scarce, one of the only um, to have that uh, stamped thing, <laughs> that thing that um, is specifically minted, specifically authenticated. Um, yeah, there, there's plenty of uh, perceived value there. And then that's really the driver behind the NFT space.
Well, in, in order to, to increase the valuation, it, it appears that you have to have uh, one notoriety uh, and then you have to have a, uh, uh, a robust internet marketing plan. Uh, how do you match those pieces uh, together? And can a person without notoriety rise up in that, uh, in that marketplace uh, and uh, profit uh, from uh, the uh, creation of, uh, of their NFT? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I do think it. This does not bypass the uh, the need to to grind and the need to rise. Um, so you, if you put something out there, it's literally much the same as releasing a song. If nobody knows you exist and nobody seeks it out, mm-hmm. probably nobody will hear it. It will fall within the other millions of untapped, untouched stuff out there. Um, so it does have to be coupled with the the grind, which is whether you're uh, tapping into your local market, playing those bars, playing those gigs, uh, getting some traction, whether you're able to tour and, and sort of build some popularity that way. Um, it, it, it doesn't supplant that. It doesn't replace that. What it can do is add another stream of income of access um, to you when you have that. And and I would say, even if you are unknown, um, which I consider myself, I, I relish being behind the scenes and that's where I want to stay. Um, that does not uh, uh, take away from uh, the value in just putting something out there as a, as a stake in the ground. Um, something that your day ones can can get, can call to, can see in 10 years or however long it takes you when you do make that ascent um, to say they had one of the first, one of the only, um, that value still is there, but it is exactly as speculative um, as you'd imagine. If, if you don't already have that, uh, that groundswell behind you and that popularity, um, so yeah, I, I I'd say that. You know that that's such an interesting um, point, right? Because if you think about uh, Jay Z, for example, early in his career, so he had those folks who were you know diehard Jay Z fans who you know, but it's a small group because you know everyone kind of starts crawling right before they start walking and running. And with the NFT space for these emerging artists. It's an opportunity for those who, you know, really love your work to um, have some ownership in something that you've created that may very well increase significantly in value. And this was a point that you made before. Um, But something else that you said kind of coupled with that demonstrates the value for creative. So you had talked about smart contracts and, and right. I want to make sure I've, I've got this right. So I'm going to share my perspective and you can tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. So if you have an emerging artist and they create an NFT, if they have within that NFT a smart contract that says every time this NFT is sold, I get a percentage of that sale price, um, then as the value of that NFT increases and as it continues to be sold, that 
artist who 10 years ago was just barely making it is still able to profit off of an NFT that they created when they were basically unknown. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that, that's the perfect, uh, perfect way to tie it together. Um, one of, one of the, the guys I really respect in the, on the music side, um, he's a musician producer out of, out of uh, Philly and Jersey named Dana Sori. And he has a, a mantra called stay home money. Um, so he was a touring musician. He played for Ty Tribbett, everybody else. Um, but really found the sweet spot in learning the publishing space, the writing space, how those splits work, um, music placement on commercials and film and TV. And he's trying to, to share and, and school us that um, where the real value lies is when, as a musician, as a creative, when you don't have to leave the comfort of your home, the uh, the company of your family in order to uh, continue to live off your art. Um, so smart contracts are a really great way to, to do that. You, you're able to pretty much set a royalty rate um, that no matter how many times this thing changes hands every time, uh, you're going to see a cut and you're going to see a, a check, quote unquote, probably a wire transfer in this day and age. Um, but proceeds from your art. Um, and, and the smart contract thing, it really can't be overstated um, exactly how, how much of a game changer that can be um, in, the, in the music space specifically with, again, as I mentioned, the publisher and the, uh, and the writer splits, that stuff uh, adding up to 200% and nobody knowing exactly who's supposed to get what. Um, even the the best in the business can often be tripped up and confused by um, by what's supposed to happen and what does in reality. Um, so if you're able to bake into a work, bake into a thing, how those mechanics, those payouts, those proceeds are actually supposed to go, um, that that really does move the move the ball in a in a positive direction. Um, there's one tool I use uh, both as the, the entertainment lawyer side and, and as a writer, writer and publisher myself um, called Song Splits. Um, they're currently working on a, a crowdfunding and, and whatnot that I'm not going to advertise, but um, they are similarly uh, working with the, the, the proverbial split sheet uh, that we see with the song. Everybody lists their percentage, who their publisher is, what's associated with it. Um, they're working on a way to make that uh, a smart contract of sorts to where as that money comes in, whether it's from streaming, whether it's from performance royalties, um, that those people are paid the way they're supposed to be. Um, and yeah, I, I see these tools, these digital tools as as a real improvement on, on the system that a lot of times involves human error, oversights, or just underhanded business practices um, that we see a lot in these spaces. Um, so yeah, the blockchain, it has a, a lot of transparency to it. Um, a historical record you can't mess up and change after the fact. Um, and the ability to have smart contracts really, I think, is the secret sauce to whether it's NFTs or, or other methods to really disrupt the current industry, the current space 
that has a lot of barriers to entry. Um, I, I think this does pave the path and smooth the path forward. Um, for the unknowns, like you said, they can create a song now, 10 years later, get proceeds. Um, yeah, I, I really do see a benefit here. And, and not to sell it. So again, me, myself owns zero NFTs currently. Um, I am working on an album and some other stuff that I'm, I'm probably going to um, have some elements of tokens and minting to it. Um, but that's a, that's a sort of down the road thing. Um, and yeah, I, I would say it's stay home money. If you can get it, <laughs> that's, that's ideal as a creative. How, how wide is the market, uh, for, for these uh, NFTs right now? It's, it's pretty wide and growing. Um, I would say you, you do have to look at it in, in pieces. So there are sort of these uh, enthusiast or niche markets where, for instance, they're going to be really interested in sports cards, sports clips, all of those things trading and the, the value there. Um, if someone's a music enthusiast, they might have artists that they follow and, and want to own a piece of it. Um, with the with the smart contracts thing, before I lose this thought, um, this does tie nicely to my other practice as a business lawyer. Um, really what you can do and set up is almost having a, a cap table, capitalization chart tied to a work um, to where you have a stated stake of ownership um, that continues. You have early investors, let's call them, that buy the thing first. They could have a stated stake of ownership that continues, gets diluted as you go. Um, so it really does even have the possibility to create markets and uh, I don't want to call them securities because that brings in a whole re regulatory aspect. <laughs> but, um, but ways to share uh, not just your art, not just the thing, but share in the in the upside of it, the profitability of it. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's it's such a. I, I agree, it's a fascinating area. You were talking about how smart contracts can help alleviate, you know, human errors, also the underhanded business practices, and we know historically that black artists have been taken advantage of. Um, we're, we're just about out of time, but I, I know we would love to have you come back. Um, one of the, the areas I'd like to explore a little bit more is kind of the, the barrier to entry, not being so much money, but being knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about who has access to the information uh, and who is being fed misinformation, so this is an area that, that you practice. Um, you have folks that come to you, not everybody you know, artists is able to afford an attorney who's knowledgeable in this space. And it, and the area is moving so quickly. Lawyers are not keeping up. You can get a lot of misinformation on the internet. And I think because it is um, moving so quickly, our community especially has to think creatively about making sure that we have access to this information so we can avail ourselves of these opportunities. Because I think the smart contract aspect of it that you've emphasized 
is really important, but you can't take advantage if you don't understand. And understanding requires that time and education. And sometimes we don't even have time because we're trying to deal with other things, you know, keep the lights on. And so, you know, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show and explore uh, those other aspects as well. Yeah, I'd be happy to, uh, to continue the conversation. Um, I, I do personally uh, sometimes lament that I have a, a billable hour and that I have a, a price point uh, to access. Um, what I try to do in order to provide that that access um, is podcasts just like this um, and, and other exchanges where people that seek out the information can find credible uh, and current uh, info. Um, it, it is hard with the internet and, and this sort of speaks to NFTs as well to know what is good and what is trash and what is tried, true, and valuable and what is uh, just someone saying anything on YouTube. So um, so there is some degree of due diligence, of scrutiny um, f- from where I come from. Uh, I, I call that uh, a, a sort of a spiritual eye of sorts uh, to know what really um is for you and 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 going to advance you um so i i do think ultimately the takeaway from this conversation with nfts um don't buy blindly uh there is some due diligence that has to be conducted for one making sure that the seller is the owner or has a license uh, to sell it um so that that whole copyright law layer can be addressed that way um, and then just knowing whether there are smart contracts associated with it, so you know what you're getting into, what those splits will look like. Um, and then whether you want to add smart contracts of your own to sell it moving forward. Um, so those are all things to consider. All right. Well, great. Well, this was a wonderful conversation. I, I hate that we're out of time, but yes, we will definitely bring you back. We want to thank our guest, Pete Singh. He is a musician and he's also an attorney at Fourscore Business Law, where he practices intellectual property and licensing and other business law uh, areas. We'd, of course, like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your sending with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any common questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.